you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter four. We continue our study in Ephesians. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, you'll notice that the, uh, the text is printed on your sermon guide and you can follow along there. Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 through chapter five, verse two. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. We are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Pastor was sharing his conversion experience that happened to him when he was in his early 20s. And he described that moment, that event that was really significant in him coming alive and, and coming to Christ. He was at a conference and uh, the speaker said this, if the distance between the earth and the sun is represented by the thickness of this sheet of paper, 92 million miles, but if that distance is rep represented by this sheet of paper, then the distance between here and the nearest star is a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the, and the distance between here and the end of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is a speck in the universe that we can see, the part of the universe we can see. And if Hebrews chapter one is correct, that God created all this and that God holds it together with the power of his word, she said, is that the kind of God that you would invite into your life to be your assistant? 
And the point was this. What we read here in Ephesians 4 is not about a better life. It's not about God just coming in and and helping you be a more behaved or moral person. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about God being your assistant. He's talking about utter and complete change. Becoming brand new. Not just a better version of who you are, but something completely different. New creation. New self. And so the question becomes, how do you become that? How do you change? How do you actually become someone brand new? We're going to look at three points here. You change through new power, new motives, and new practices. Now, let's, let's start with new power. There's language in this passage, put off and put on, that is really critical to understand. When Paul says, put off the old self, put on the new self, that, that verb, put off and put on, is in the Greek tense called the aorist. Greek, Greek is the original language this is written in. And it's in the aorist tense, which means this, that it's a one-time, completed, past, finished action. What he's not talking about here, when he says, put off, put on, is keep putting on the new and keep putting off the old. That, that's true to some extent, but that's not what he means here. This is a definitive action. He's saying to these Ephesian believers that you put off and put on. That it, there was a one-time, deliberate, conscious decision that you made to put off the old and put on the new. Now, what is the old? When he says put off the old self, what is the old self? In this room, we have Christians who have been in Christ for 20 plus years. We have Christians that maybe have been in Christ for a year. We have non-Christians in this room. We have some non-Christians who are seeking and trying to learn what Christianity is all about and who Jesus is. And there are some of you that maybe somewhat stumbled into church this morning and don't necessarily have much interest in the things of God. That's who is represented in this room. And when we talk about the old self, I want you to know that for some of you, you all have already put off the old self. Maybe it was 20 years ago. And, and what we're going to describe here is what you were. For some of you, it's what you currently are and what you're in the midst of and what God longs to call you out of. So what is the, what is the old Self. Well, it's described by two characteristics, two primary characteristics in verses 17 to 19. And that is hardness of heart, verse 18, and then reckless living. I'll call it reckless living in verse 19. We'll explain that. Hardness of heart. What is hardness of heart? It means the stubborn rejection of what you know to be true. That's what hardness of heart is. It's the stubborn rejection of what you know to be true. Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, suppress the truth. What that verse means is that there is no such thing as an atheist. It means that in every person on the face of the earth, the truth about God, the truth of God is in them. 
It's just suppressed to varying degrees. Sometimes to the point of not even being recognizable. But the truth is in there. And when you deny something you know to be true, your heart becomes calloused. Verse 19. That when you deny something over and over and over that you know to be true, that's inside of you, that your heart becomes more and more calloused. I remember uh, growing up in South Florida, Deerfield Beach, remember it well, 342 Southeast 13th Street. Lived there many years. And uh, one of my neighborhood friends, Matthew Knight, a uh, little towhead from Britain, great kid. We played a lot. Uh, I remember when his parents did something that was, uh, it was strange. They lived on a corner lot and in between the sidewalk and the road was the swale of grass. Well, they tore out all their grass and they put in white rocks. And I don't know why, maybe they didn't want to mow as much, but they put in white rocks. And I remember the first time that, uh, I think it was the beginning of the summer, and I went over to Matthews to play. And, in, and we played in our bare feet all the time. Like we just, that's what we did all day long. I walked over to Matt, and I remember walking across those white rocks the first time to Matthew's house, and it hurt. It was painful. But by the end of the summer, after playing outside all summer long in bare feet, by the end of the summer, I could walk across those rocks. I could run across those rocks and barely feel it because the calluses had built up on my feet. Except once in a while, when I would, when I would run across those rocks, a, a rock would just at the right angle get my foot and I'd feel the pain and I'd be reminded that there are rocks here. This isn't grass. You can reject God. You can suppress the truth about God, but you can't escape him. The truth is in you. And you can reject him, but you can't escape him. My sophomore year of college, Carnegie Mellon University. My freshman year, spring semester, I joined a fraternity. And I started living uh, a lifestyle that was very different than my moral, clean upbringing. And I remember my sophomore year. I remember it well. I was at a party. I was drinking. I was enjoying myself. I was enjoying being free from these moral boundaries that I had Learned growing up. I grew up in a church. It was not a church that taught Christianity really well. It was a church that, here's what I learned. Uh, you don't drink, you don't smoke, and you don't have sex before marriage. And yes, there is something called a God. That's what I basically knew. And I got to Carnegie Mellon, and I got free from those boundaries, and I was enjoying life. And this freshman from Katy, Texas, Goldie Patel, walks up to me and says, Keith, this was a freshman pledge in our fraternity. He said, Keith, does the Bible say that it's a sin to get drunk? And I was furious. And here's why I was furious. Because I had worked really, really hard at suppressing this truth that was in me about God. And Goldie asked that question, and it was like the rock at the right angle that shot a, a God awareness up into my heart again. And I had to work really hard to suppress it again. I was furious because the truth was in me. It was there. I had just learned to suppress it deeply. And of course, once you're calloused, right, you lose sensitivity to things. 
sensuality, impurity, all that stuff becomes easy. You, you lose the ability to feel guilt. You lose the ability to feel shame. You lose the ability to have an awareness of God and even a sensitivity to God. And once you're calloused, you give yourself over. That's verse 19. You give yourself over to sensuality and purity. Anything that you can try to find to, to satisfy these deep desires within, the ache of your soul, right? Romans 1.24 describes it this way. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men. It's describing what happens when God gives you over. You know, the question comes often, does God send people to hell? And the answer, what we learn from Romans chapter one is, no, he doesn't have to, that people go willingly that people go willingly. The worst possible thing that can happen is for someone to be given over to their freedom, to, given, to be given over to, to their freedom. And yet that's, that's what the calloused, hardened human heart wants, is just freedom. It's like a, it's like a fish in water that looks outside the water and, and sees people and animals playing around and goes, oh, if I only could experience that, I could live. And so the fish wants to jump out of water and be free. And we know that a fish isn't free out of water. Fish is dead. Or, or a person that jumps out of an airplane with a, with a parachute pack on, skydiving. And as he's free falling, realizes, man, this pack's a little bit constraining. I don't need this. I don't want this. So he sheds his pack and he says, I'm free. He's not free. He's, he's minutes away from death minutes away from death. You see, there's freedom within the constraints of design, right? A fish is free within the constraints of water. A skydiver is free within the constraints of a parachute pack. And you and I are free within the constraints of God. And yet, that hardened heart, that calloused heart, refuses to submit to God, refuses to come underneath those boundaries, and, and ultimately alienates itself from the life of God. That's what we learn in verse 18. And so, so Paul says to these Ephesian believers, he says, look at this. You have put this off. And he says, put off this way of thinking and put on the new. Put off this old way of thinking and put on the new self. You know, put off and put on, it refers to, the word refers to, putting on, putting off a garment of clothing. The Greeks would use it to describe putting on and putting off uh, virtues. But it never, it never got used to refer to putting off and putting on an actual person, a new self. That was unheard of. The same is true of, of uh, verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Again, the Greeks would say, you learned virtue. Unheard of that you would learn a person. So what Paul's talking about here is absolutely countercultural. He's not describing 
or he's not telling them to put on morality. He's telling them to put on a person. You know, it's interesting when you think about Christianity and many who, uh, when they look at Christianity, the immediate thought, and it's how I grew up, that Christianity is putting on morality. It's putting on good behavior. And yet that's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying put on morality, put on good behavior. You know, it's a, the question that comes often from someone who is outside of Christ is this, do, do I have to stop doing drugs to be a Christian? Or do I have to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend to be a Christian? That's the wrong question. Because Christianity is about becoming a new person before it's ever about adopting a new set of behaviors. It's about becoming a new person before it's ever about adopting a new set of behaviors. And that is exactly what Paul is describing here. You see, putting on a new set of behaviors doesn't change anyone. In fact, let me give you a cultural example around this. 50 years ago in the United States, the American public, as a general rule, would, would have adopted the, the Bible or biblical values and ethics as the, the norm of life. And because of that, and, and by that I mean a man and a woman are to get married, that's what marriage is, um, you don't get pregnant out of wedlock, right? These kind of values, 50 years ago, generally in, in, embraced by our culture. And so what that would produce is, 50 years ago, a high school girl that got pregnant would disappear, right? She, she wouldn't be seen in school because of the shame, the judgment, the disappointment. She would disappear. Contrast that to today. Example, in New York of the group of teenagers, high school teenagers that started a competition to see who could get pregnant first. Now, you, how far apart is that, right? Now, we look at that and go, wow, look how people have changed. No, no, nothing's changed. People haven't changed. The social pressure is off. You see, there was a cultural rule in place 50 years ago, a restraint that was in place that said, you don't do that. Today, that restraint's gone. And the social pressure's off. But nothing has changed. Hearts haven't changed. Because a rule, even if it's a cultural rule or a cultural pressure, can't change the human heart. Bill Gothard, some of you may know that name, founder of the Institute in Basic Life Principles. He ran a large, large ministry a very successful ministry by numbers and followers that was a ministry that was heavy on Christian discipline. He would have big conferences and, and sessions where he would, he would pound on rules and he would pound on discipline and he would pound on how you're to live as a Christian and he would pound and pound. And in the last couple of years, woman after woman has come forward to confess sexual harassment from Bill Gothard. In fact, there's an entire website called Recovering Grace that is a website for people that have been wounded and hurt under that ministry and what it was teaching, which was the premise was that rules will change people. And it doesn't. Right? Putting on morality does not change the human heart. 
Only a collision with Jesus Christ will change the human heart. Putting on morality will not change the human heart. Only a collision with Jesus Christ, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ will change the human heart. And that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 21. When he says in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him, about Jesus, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, not in the propositional statements that come from Jesus, though those are true, or the commands that come from Jesus, those are true, but in the person of Jesus. That's where truth is. Not in culture, but in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus went from new to old so that you could go from old to new. That Jesus left glory and he took on your sin and your hardness and your calloused heart so that you could go from old to being a new creation, which is described in verse 24. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus Christ refused to let you live a godless existence. He refused to let you walk down a path of self-absorption that would harden your heart and cut you off and alienate you from the life of his father. And only in a personal collision or encounter with Jesus are you recreated. Do you receive a new heart? So how do you change? First, through new power, through a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, putting off the old and putting on the new self. Second, through new motives, through new motives. The problem is not ultimately your behavior. The problem is, are the desires that fuel your behavior. How do we know this? Look at verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through what? deceitful desires, right? The corruption, the, the bad, the harm, the callousness, the reckless living, all that stuff, all the corruption comes what? Through deceitful desires. Desires give birth to corrupt behavior. James explains it this way in chapter one, verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his friends. No, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by cultural pressure. No, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You do what you do, not because somebody made you do it. You do what you do, not because it's just too much pressure or the circumstances are rough. No, you do what you do because you wanted to do it, right? I've said it before, but when someone does something out of character, what's the first thing we say? Ah, that is just not him. If we understand the gospel, no, it is him. It is him. We do what we do out of desires that are deep within. And so if we're gonna talk about change, those desires have to change. Those desires have to undergo recreation. And note here in verse 22, it says through deceitful desires. That means desires that trick you or desires that are deceitful. Now, how are desire, desires deceitful? I'm gonna speak of, of two ways that desires are deceitful, okay? First is through empty promises. And this is probably really ties into what Paul describes here in 17 through 19. But through empty promises, it goes something like this. 
if you take this drug, your problems will go away. Or if you work 90 hours a week, you will feel like you're worth something. Or if you give your body away to this man, you will feel acceptance and love. Empty promises, right? Those desires that say, if, if, if you do this, you'll be happy. No, they, they actually deliver death and meaninglessness, okay? So, so desires are deceitful through empty promises. Second, they're deceitful through what I'm gonna call masked altruism. Altruism is just simply meaning selfless acts, okay? How are desires deceitful in that way? You can do selfless acts for selfish reasons. Think about it. How do, you, how do you get a child to do something? Those of you that have children, there's a number of ways. And some ways are really quick. I.e., you can get a child to do something by way of fear, right? Fear of consequences. Can at least change behavior pretty quickly. Or through pride. How does that work with children? You're better than that. You're better than that, right? To get them to change. Or you can do it through shame. Listen, if you do that, your friends are gonna laugh at you at school. You shame them into changing. All three of those, what's what's the common denominator? Fear, pride, shame. It's self, right? You're appealing to that child's self-preservation. That that's, that's the motive that you're appealing to. Had to teach my son this several times. Right? When I will, when he does something, um, it's really rare, but when he does something he's not supposed to, uh, and I'll say, stop, and he keeps going. And I'll say, that's a one, that's a two, and if, if I get to three, he's gonna get disciplined. Some people would say, why do you even count? Well, read the Old Testament. How often does God warn Israel? Before he, before he brings punishment, judgment, right? God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He warns Israel over and over. That's why. But when I get to three, sometimes I'll get to three and he'll go, okay, okay. And I'll bring him back to discipline and he says, daddy, but I stopped. And I say, son, you stopped because you were avoiding the consequences. You did not stop because you were love, loving, honoring, and obeying your daddy. You see, motives are everything. Motives are everything. You can do all the right things, including religious activities, for incredibly selfish reasons. One of the fundamental things that happens at salvation when you have this collision with Jesus Christ, this personal encounter with Jesus Christ, one of the fundamental things that he does, God does, is changes your wanter. He changes your wanter. That he, he creates in you brand new desires. Before Christ, your wanter is pegged on self and it can't come off of self. After a personal encounter with Christ, after salvation, your wanter now has the ability to move to Christ and move to others. And it's a lifelong process of that wanter increasingly moving from self to others. It's described in verse 23. Verse 23, 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Remember I said the put off, put on is a one-time past act. It's a deliberate decision. Being renewed, that's in the passive, which means now God is working by his spirit to renew you, to renew your mind and your thinking, to retrain how you think about what you do and why you do what you do. And that's what brings us to chapter five, verses one and two, when he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Walk in love. Look at how this passage is bookend. At the beginning, verse 17, don't walk in your former ways, which are ways of self, walk in love, right? That that wanter needs to, needs to move. I want you to imagine, I mentioned it last week, but let me fill it out a little bit. Imagine an orphan who's been in an orphanage for 10 years, from birth up until he's 10 years old, he's in this orphanage. And this is a boy that is incredibly angry, uh, defensive, insecure, has a temper, that when he's out on the playground in the orphanage and, and other kids either critique him or, uh, or make fun of him, or if he gets left out of a game, he loses it. He lashes out in anger. He starts bullying. Why? Because he's a parentless orphan and he's trying to prove himself. He's trying to justify his existence and make himself and others think that he's worthwhile. Now imagine at age 10, this child gets adopted into a wonderful family. Instantly, legally, he's no longer what? Old self, parentless orphan. New self, beloved child in this family, right? Instantly, off with the old, on with the new. He's with this new family. First couple months of school, he goes out on the playground and he's playing with the kids. And guess what happens? He gets critiqued, he gets made fun of, or he gets left out of a game and all those old habits come out. He loses it. He starts lashing out. He starts bullying other kids. And you say, why? He's a beloved child now. He's not a parentless orphan. No, but his mind and his heart have to be retrained. He has to be renewed to think on who he is. That he's no longer a parentless orphan, that he is a, he's a beloved child. That he doesn't have to prove his worth anymore. That he doesn't have to justify his existence because his father and his mother love him and that's enough. And so he doesn't have to seek affirmation on the playground. You and I have been adopted if you're in Christ. You're a child of the king. And yet we get out on the playground, whether it's at work or a literal playground with other moms. And what do we find? That that old behavior, those old thought patterns surface. And it's those thought patterns that have to be renewed by the Spirit. That we would think of who we are in Christ, secure in our Father's love. Right? That we, we have new power that the old self has been put off, that the new self has been put on, that we have new motivations to actually love other people and not have to use other people to get our affirmation. All that's true, but it takes renewal. And so if you see the progression here where we're going, new power for change, new motives for change, and then this gives birth to new practices. 
And I want you to see the progression here. New power, new motives, and then we get to verses 25 to 32, new practices. Why is that progression so important? Because you cannot carry out the commands in verses 25 to 32 with consistency unless you're operating out of this new power and these new motives. Let me give you an example. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 25. What does verse 25 basically say? Be honest, right? Put away falsehood. Be honest with one another. What's the reason that you lie when you do? It's always for some self-preservation reason, right? Avoid consequences, um, build up yourself into somebody you're not. There's a lot of reasons that we lie. They're all centered on self. Here's what's interesting. You can be honest for selfish reasons. If, you're, if you try to be honest apart from new power and new motives, then as soon as being honest doesn't help yourself, you'll turn to lying. These new practices flow out of new power and flow out of new motives. And that they're about the other. Look, all of these, all of these commands are other-centered. For example, look at verse 28. It says, don't steal. Why? Why shouldn't you steal? So that you can be a good behaved Christian and God will be happy with you. No, so that you can actually help somebody else. That you can actually give to other people, be generous. They're other-centered commands, communal commands. They have the other person in view and they, they speak of the goal of obedience. So as we get to these new practices, what's the goal of obedience? What's the goal of these new practices that Paul lays out? Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The goal for obedience is to build others up. Romans 13 says it this way. Romans 13, nine. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That love is the fulfillment of the law. If you don't have new power and new motives, if you're still operating out of old self, you will use God's law to justify yourself. If you are operating out of new self, new power, new motives, then you will use God's law not to justify yourself before him or others, but actually to love others. There's other-centered trajectory to these new practices. Several years ago, it was uh, January 2014, you may remember it, uh, emergency snowstorm, massive snowstorm hits Alabama. Southern half of the state was shut down. Birmingham uh, was uh, gridlocked, cars stranded. Nobody could get anywhere. State of emergency in Birmingham. A brain surgeon in the Brookwood Medical Center gets a phone call from Trinity Medical Center in Birmingham. And there was a patient there that needed emergency surgery. And then if he didn't get it, he had a 90% chance of dying. Cars couldn't move. Emergency personnel were, were caught up, overwhelmed. 
So this 62-year-old doctor, 62-year-old doctor, throws on a coat over his scrubs and walks six miles from the Brookwood Medical Center to the Trinity Medical Center. And he described the journey, falling down a hill, rolling down a hill, getting there. And he arrived at Trinity and he performed the surgery and he saved the man's life. Of course, the press got hold of this. They hold a press conference. And this 62-year-old doctor was like, what's all the fuss about? He didn't quite get it. Listen to what he said. He said, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Any good doctor would have done the same thing. The patient was dying. And he said, that wasn't going to happen on my shift. Listen, you were dying. You are dying. And Jesus Christ said, I am not going to let them die on my shift. I refuse to let my people live a godless existence. I refuse to let my people walk this road of self-absorption that is headed towards meaningless, futility, and death. I refuse to let my people live a godless existence. And you and I both know that Jesus Christ sacrificed a lot more than a six-mile walk in the snow for you. Let's pray. Father, the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, for sinful people like us, for sinful people like us, described in verses 17 to 19 as ignorant, futile in mind, hardness of heart, calloused, alienated. The sacrifice of your son is nothing short of amazing. And Father, we ask your forgiveness this morning that we would reduce this grand story of redemption this grand story of the God of the universe taking on flesh to rescue his people, the God who made this universe that is beyond comprehension, we confess and we repent of reducing the gospel to putting on morality. Father, would you, if there are those of us in this room who have yet to put off and put on and have this personal encounter with Jesus Christ, would you draw them to that place? And Father, would you forgive us for our false and impure motives that drive us to do selfless things, but for selfish reasons? Would you renew the spirit of our minds to help us become who we already are in Christ? And that our motive for following your commands, many of that are listed out in this passage, that our motive would be to love others and love you, Jesus. That we'd be so secure in your love for us, Father, that we wouldn't need the affirmation of others. We wouldn't need the affirmation of the world. That we would be freed up to love 
you and love others. Father, would you make us new and beautiful? And as we close in worship, would that be the cry of our hearts? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.